Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Announcer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. We're here with Caregiver SOS on air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Carol is the chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and we spend these days with you one hour a week talking about caregiving, caregivers, and uh, ways in which this field is absolutely growing and growing and trying to gain some respect uh, across the country, and that's our guest coming up in just a few minutes, uh, Ai-Jin Poo, who you know from the National Council on Aging. Yes, you know, one of the joys of working on the national level is meeting people who are the next generation that are going to change the world, and Ai-Jin Poo is one of those who has become involved in issues surrounding direct care workers, caregiving, um, trying to professionalize, get adequate pay, and really change the entire uh, caregiving world, both for the workers and for the families who need caregiving. And named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine. Which um, most people aren't. No, most people are not. <laughs> most people are and not. And the MacArthur Genius Fellow winner. We'll talk more about her coming up in a few minutes. But you've got a list that for those who are listening, whether you're a caregiver or not, whether you're just an individual who occasionally goes to the doctor, what are the 10 things you should bring to every doctor's appointment? So this is a list that was actually developed by a physician, by a primary care doctor who said, this is what I wish my patients would have with them, or, or it would just be smart. So think this is a doctor talking to you saying this is what they want you to have. And the first is your medical history, really a listing of your surgeries, your medical conditions, what happened to you when, um, because you never know when something, you know, will relate to what's going on with you now that maybe you don't know about because you're not the doctor. That's a good point. Yeah, and it, and it also is a fast way for a doctor to look at it and say, you know, oh, here's the history. I didn't know you before, but, yes, now I see, you know, the, the conditions that you have. And it wouldn't hurt to write that down rather than try to do it from total recall. Oh, no, no, no. This is to bring with you. So write it down, chronological order. Um, and while you're writing it down, circle those, this is number two, circle those tests and surgeries that you've had recently, the last change in medications, the last tests that you have. Um, I just actually had a physician's appointment this morning, uh, and they had a whole litany of questions about what had happened since they last saw me. Um, I was glad none of them had happened, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but they did ask. Um, you know, and the next thing you want to bring is that proverbial brown bag with all your medications, prescription medications, and all of your supplements and over-the-counter medications. So it's really three things are in that bag. Whatever you take. Whatever you take, whether your doctor prescribed it, whether you bought it at the drugstore, or whether you got it at the health food store, um, and it's some sort of a supplement because those alternative therapies are just as important um, as the prescription drugs. So, So we've got your medical card, we've got your history, your treatments, your prescriptions, now we want a journal of your symptoms. If you're going to the doctor because something's going on in the hours or days leading up to that appointment, write down your symptoms. What's going on? Um, and if it's a routine checkup, what are your concerns? You know, my hip's been hurting. I'm not sleeping. I have to go to the bathroom 20 times during the night. What is it use on your wish list that you wish the doctor could help you with? would be a good thing to have. And there are things on the list, and Dr. Robin Eikhoff, uh, with whom I do well-met radio jokes, it's the, oh, by the way, leaving the exam room, a patient will often lay out what is the real concern they have. That's right. And you want to get that up front. Don't be shy. Um, so you just mentioned it, your list of questions. You absolutely want to have that. You want to have a notebook and a pen to write down the responses so that here you've got all these great questions. Make sure you write down the answers because you think you're going to remember and you're not. And just to make sure you remember, take a family member or a friend to your medical appointment with you who can help be that extra peer, pair of ears. With smartphones today, you can also record that conversation and what? have the doctor's 
words on recording. Well, and the interesting number nine is a smartphone. Oh, well, you know, you at the very least, you can look up, you know, information about your condition or the prescriptions or, you know, questions, or it'll entertain you if you've got a good movie on. And I always keep a movie <laughs> on my phone. Um, and I love the last one, Snacks. So sometimes you wait three hours. Sometimes you're going to, you know, get a little hungry sitting there. So I thought it was great that the doctor said, you know, it may take you a while to see a physician if it's that kind of a place. So bring along a few snacks and maybe a few extras for the person next to you. That's not a bad idea. And, uh, of course, there'll be healthful snacks. Healthful snacks. Healthful good, good snacks. healthy protein nuts and things like that. Up next, uh, and this deals with Alzheimer's. Uh, the new national plan, the latest one on Alzheimer's. Well, they just had a hearing recently on the Hill, uh, Capitol Hill, on Alzheimer's disease, and it was the Select Committee on Aging. And the Alzheimer's Foundation of America was talking about what came out of it. So, you know, we had the first national plan for Alzheimer's was designed in 2012. Uh, and Dr. Peterson, who is the chair of the Advisory Council for Alzheimer's Research, was there saying, yes, you know, things have improved. We've gotten more funding for Alzheimer's research, but we have a long way to go because the plan says we want to cure and eradicate Alzheimer's by the year 2025. We want to cure by 2025. It's 2016, tick, 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 tick. Now we have we nine years, right? Um, so we need some more funding. And David Hyde Pierce, who spoke at the White House Conference on Aging on the Caregiving Panel, also testified. He said, not only do we need the money for research, please don't forget people who have Alzheimer's today, who need services today, whose families need support today. Um, it can't all be about the future. It can't be there's nothing for you now, uh, but those who get sick later will have something, which I thought was a really important point. In fact, our guest who's coming up, I, Jen Poo, is someone you saw speak at the National Conference on Aging, actually, the White House Conference. Actually, we should have had David Hyde Pierce join us today, and we could have just relived the White House Conference on be a, Aging. Be a serious David Hyde that, Pierce. That's right. And uh, President Obama was probably a little busy today. Otherwise, we could have invited him, and that would have been it. We would have it <laughs> complete. Um, and then the last thing I talked about were, were services that really help lower the cost of care, caring for someone with Alzheimer's, like adult daycare. And if you don't know about adult daycare, please look in your area and see who provides it. Go visit it. It's a wonderful place where you can take your loved one. You get socialization, activities, lunch. Um, if it's adult day health care, there will be a nurse there to administer their medications. And it's way cheaper than private pay in home and or a nursing home. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We're brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, and that's the latest on the National Plan on Alzheimer's. And a spinoff out of that, Carol, uh, folks who are dealing with uh, uh, someone who has dementia, has Alzheimer's, uh, often will find that there's a period of time uh, where they become hostile, very difficult to deal with, uh, and in some cases, uh, very angry. My dad, for example, who was the most peaceful person in the world, never saw him have a crossword with my mom, went through that period where he became hostile. Well, and, you know, that's so common. So we wanted to follow up because we like to offer a few tips, you know, every week that maybe somebody can take with them and make their life a little bit easier. And there was an article in Next Avenue about why is my mother with dementia so difficult. Um, and the geriatric psychiatrist, and I'm going to tear up this name. I'm so sorry, doctor. It looks like Kat Kat, K-H-A-T-K-H-A-T-E. Uh, maybe it's Kach Kate uh, from Chicago Loyola University, was t talks about... Um, how confusing and frightening the world must be for someone with Alzheimer's. All of a sudden, you picture it if you, you know, that walking into a room, not knowing what you're supposed to do, not recognizing anybody, um, and then not being able to understand what people are saying to you. And then all of a sudden, somebody's telling you what to do. Why are they telling you what to do? Aren't you an adult? And why are they talking to you like that? I mean, it, your world is completely flipped around. And so you can imagine why someone might be angry and not, you know, at not understanding, being told what to do when they don't want to be told what to do because nobody likes that. Um, and so these these outbursts can be because of their confusion. And they can also be outbursts, maybe they're in physical pain or emotional pain. 
and they just can't communicate that to you. And so that anger, that lashing out, that cursing um, is the way they express that. And for the caregiver, the spouse, the loved one, uh, it's very frightening. Well, it's frightening, and you may think they're doing it on purpose. And so uh, our friend Dr. Jamie Heisman talks very often about separating the disease from the person. The person's not trying to be mean. They're not trying to do it on purpose purpose. So if you were to take a brain of somebody who didn't have Alzheimer's and someone who did have Alzheimer's, the person with Alzheimer's brain actually has holes in it, actually has lost up to three pounds of weight. They get down to one pound brain. I mean, little animals have one pound brains. Humans have bigger brains than that. Um, And so, you know, just thinking about the physical effects, you know, and you also have to get over reconciling who the person is that's having the bad behavior. I've mentioned before my mother-in-law uh, going to a restaurant, and and we look over, and she's eating the butter pats off of the table. You know the little squares with right. the cellophane on them, and you peel them off. And, and the butter's was, in there. And she was peeling them off one just, I mean, one after the other. Peel it, eat it. Peel it, eat it. And she would make this horrible face because eating butter pats is <laughs> not as tasty as, uh, well, it's probably about as tasty as it seems. Um <laughs> And so, you know, you have to be able to deal with those kinds of situations sure. or if they're having a meltdown, just like your, if your child was having a meltdown in the store, you, you need to take care of that um, and you have to do that in a responsible way. They had, there was an idea in the article that I thought was just great. It was a business card for caregivers that says, my loved one, my partner has Alzheimer's. You know, if you'll please address questions to me uh, and appreciate your patience as we try to answer them. That's a good idea. So that you don't have to tell them, oh, don't listen to him. He has Alzheimer's, you know, because you still want to respect the dignity of the person. Uh, and that's I thought that was a really nice way uh, to communicate that. Uh, and, and the last thing I'll say is focusing your energy on things that you can change. Uh, I had a, We had a wonderful moment with my mother this past weekend when I went to visit her, and she has Alzheimer's disease. I, she was asleep at the facility, and I had gotten down on her level, and I patted her on the shoulder because she didn't, you know, I hadn't seen her in a while, patted her on the shoulder. And when she opened her eyes, I smiled at her, and I said, hi, Mom, do you, do you want to go out for ice cream? And she gave this huge smile oh. back. And looked at me, and she said, you look so happy. I said, I'm so happy to see you. And she's like, really? And, you know, she she took in, rather than being startled or my asking in the name, getting down on her level and just smiling at her and communicating how happy I was to see her. And she understood that. I like that. Um, so, And my dad commented on it. He said, that smile just melted my heart. Well, you have a great smile, too, so that's pretty cool. Instead of saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Putting an Alzheimer's patient on the defensive. No, I don't know who you are. I have no idea. You dealt with it in a really nice way. That's pretty cool. Next week, let's talk a bit about facts and figures on Alzheimer's out of, out of that 2016 report. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Ijen Poo joins us next. Everything you want to know about caregiving across generations and more on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. <laughs> Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and caregivers. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people who care for them. Programs like Caregiver Teleconnection. Caregiver Teleconnection is a free, bilingual, and confidential program connecting caregivers and family members to information and support through the telephone. Each Caregiver Teleconnection telelearning session is hosted by professional facilitators and experts, giving caregivers the opportunity to connect with and share with others in a similar situation. With Caregiver Teleconnection, learning and support is just a phone call away. Find out more at 866-390-6491. Or go to caregivertelleconnection.org. Well, as we've been promising, we've got a wonderful guest joining us now on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and Ai-Jen Poo, Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Co-Director of the Caring Across Generations Campaign, joins us. And she is an amazing woman. The 2014 MacArthur Foundation Fellow, a 2013 World Economic Foreign Young Global Leader. And she was named to Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2012. And the list goes on and on of incredible things that uh, you have accomplished, Igen. So 
Uh, we're really honored to have you on Caregiver SOS on air. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to speak with you. That's a pretty cool list to be on, the most influential people in the world. <laughs> well, it's true. You know, not quite sure how I ended up on that list, but uh, it's it's been a real honor. Well, and I have to say, I had the pleasure of serving with iGen on the National Council on the Aging Board of Directors um, before iGen took off with all of all of her work, uh, and um, had the also had the pleasure of hearing iGen speak last year at the White House Conference on Aging, where she was on the panel on caregiving issues. Yes, wasn't that a great panel? David Hyde Pierce kicked it off with this amazing phrase that I keep repeating because it was so moving to me. He said, we must remember that to age is to live and to care is to be human. Oh, I like that. And I just thought that, yeah, I just thought that was such a powerful way to well, start and, the conversation. And then in the audience, you had all of the women who were wearing the T-shirts with the $15 yeah. an hour sign. That's right. They were the first two rows. It felt like were filled with home care workers who work really hard every day supporting our aging loved ones, and yet still earn very, very low wages. Um, average wages less than ten dollars per hour across the country, and so they're in a very important campaign to raise the wages to fifteen an hour. It's at like least. Uh, and, like kindergarten and they teachers, had a real unappreciated. Uh, undervalued and doing incredibly important work. That's right. right. Well, that's right. There's so many people in our economy who are working hard and supporting our right. families and yet not actually valued. Well, and I think that you said at the White House conference, which, you know, was probably one of the most poignant uh, thoughts of the day when you were talking about here we have our most precious, the most precious people in our lives, um, and we're asking people to care for them who are underpaid and undervalued uh, and really put at a disadvantage. And, you know, I recently placed, we placed my mother who has Alzheimer's in a care facility. And it has been, you know, I've watched this battle for the last few months between well-trained, not well-trained, low-paid workers, you know, with some with a good background, some without a good background who are coming Mm -hmm. into this field. Um, And and it's really, they're at a disadvantage. The people they care for are at a disadvantage. And it's become just a huge issue. Tell us, if you will, for those who are just joining us on Caregiver SOS on air and don't know what caring across generations uh, is and what it represents, uh, who are you all? (laughs) Great question. Caring Across Generations is a national initiative to bring together workers who do caregiving work, like the women who are in the front rows at the White House Conference on Aging, together with family caregivers who are struggling to manage care for their family members with older adults and people with disabilities, everyone who is affected by the need for care in this modern age in this country to actually come up with the solutions that will create value and and support for all of us to allow all of us to live well as we age and at every age. And it it sounds big, but really what we're looking at is a moment in this country's history where the demographics are shifting. People, the baby boom generation is turning 70 at a rate of 10,000 people per day, 4 million people per year, plus people are living longer than ever so that people in my grandmother's generation of 85 and older are the fastest growing demographic in the entire country. So at a time when we need more care than ever before, we have this opportunity to reinvent our systems so that they work better and so that we can actually all have the kind of care and support we need to live well. And I I think as many of your listeners will have had personal experiences with, it's, it's what we currently have is not sufficient. A lot of us think that Medicare covers long-term care, um, and it's just not the case. We just simply don't have options for the growing caregiving needs of families. And this campaign is about all of us coming together and saying, we need solutions, we want to work together to create those solutions, and there can be win-win in all of that. 
Right. And Ron and I have talked about in the past how a woman who gives up her job to take care of a loved one loses about $325,000 in lost revenue from wages, from retirement, you know, adding up mm. expenses, which is huge. And so um, carrying across generations and your National Domestic Workers Alliance, um, you, you have a, a roadmap uh, that you have described uh, of, of where we might go first. Yes, we do. We've been all over the country. There are 200 organizations that are part of this effort, and the numbers are growing every day. And we've been all over the country talking to communities about their ideas for solutions and mobilizing families. And what we found is that there are few states that are poised to really take the lead in terms of creating solutions that support both families and the workforce. And one example is the state of Hawaii, where there's been a really important proposal for the creation of a new social insurance fund for long-term care that is universal, meaning there's no income requirement to have access to it. And it covers up to 365 days of care, really structured towards supporting care that happens in the home and in the community. And so it's filling a huge gap for family caregivers who need respite care or um, people who need additional home care services. And it's, a, it's, a, it's not going to solve every problem, but it is a huge step forward in us really investing in the caregiving needs of families. And so Hawaii is a model, and other states are abuzz with thinking about what could work in their states, like Maine, um, Washington State, Minnesota. I think we're going to see major public investments at the state level where states are not going to wait for the federal government to come around on this. They're going to step forward and they're going to try to create some systems until we can create the kind of groundswell that really sends a message to our federal leaders that we've got to address this problem and there's an opportunity here. You're listening to uh, Ai-Jen Poo, who is director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, co-director of the Caring Across Generations campaign, and we are talking about the challenge of, indeed, caring across generations. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Well, well, Ai-Jen, what... How would Hawaii pay for this universal coverage, this 365 days of care that they're talking about? Well, they're talking about a 0.5% increase in the general excise tax in the state, the state sales tax. And um, and so it, it functions like social, a social insurance fund, and people are kind of paying into it. and um, And then they're able to... Um, receive the support. The 365 days does not have to happen in a row. It can be spread out throughout uh, many years. And it's a subsidy of up to $70 per day for the care that, that they need. Which, and so it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty significant boost which, given the challenges that many family caregivers are facing. And that $70 a day is pretty comparable to a benefit in a long-term care insurance policy. Right. And there's a lot happening in the long-term care insurance model. So right now, currently, the two options that people have are, one, to purchase long-term care insurance. And all the stories that I hear about long-term care insurance, it seems like as a product, it's profoundly imperfect in that it can be very expensive, prohibitively so, for millions of families. And it often doesn't cover what you need when you need it. Of course, it's better to have than not, but clearly we need other solutions to complement. So I think this is meant to provide one model of what that could look like um, in the state of Hawaii, and I am sure that Washington and Minnesota and Maine and other states will come up with other models. Now, would there be a comparable uh, training and uh, a certification program for who these home care workers would be? Where would they come from? And how would you know they're qualified? That's a great question. And, you know, we have actually moved the ball forward on training significantly in the last five years. Now, I don't know what the plan specifically in Hawaii will be for training. I think that's a great question. But I do know that in many states, with Washington State being the best example, there are really strong models for training and workforce development for the home care workforce. Washington State has 
something called the Washington State Home Care Training Fund, and it's the second largest educational institution in the entire state, second only to the University of Washington. And they train 40,000 home care workers per year in 12 different languages, including cultural competency. And there's three levels of training, including ongoing, continuing education. And so it's a very comprehensive program. And as a result, Washington State is among the most prepared in the country in terms of the workforce and and ultimately what families need. So it's, it provides a window into what's possible when we really invest in the workforce. So that's a long way from, I remember my first year on the job with the Area Agency on Aging, we were talking about personal care workers, and the Home Health Agency told me that they put up signs in the laundromats, in the washrooms of apartments, and so whoever read the sign on Sunday, you know, in the laundromat became a personal care worker on Monday when they called. Mm. with absolutely no That's training right. and I was I remember just being horrified um, at that thought this is many years ago so to you know a comprehensive program and that kind of thinking has certainly been needed um, and I know we're about to go to break so when we come back um, let's talk a little bit about some misconceptions about direct care workers great S- stick with us we'll be right back with you I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel you're listening to caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. the answer Tell you what, this is almost like a preparation for a final exam. We're learning a whole lot about caregiving and caretakers and how they're trained and who they are. Talking with Ai-Jen Poo, director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and co-director of the Caring Across Generations campaign. Uh, she formerly served on the board of the National Council on Aging, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we were talking about where do the workers come from, how do we provide income, and one of the things that uh, you mentioned early on, Jen, is how many baby boomers are turning 70 every year? You use the number about 4 million a year. That's right. And most of them don't have family to provide caregiving for them. We're running out of caregivers. That's right. And more than 90% of them would prefer to age in their homes and communities as opposed to go to a nursing home, which has been the dominant model for, for some time. So it just means that there's a huge need for a workforce supports and services for people to stay and have home care. So when people talk about direct care workers, do you think that there are misconceptions about who they are, how much they make, what their training is? What, you know, what do you find when you go across the country? There are so many misconceptions. It's, it's always... Um, it's always quite surprising to me how many there are. It's the kind of work, it's unique in that it's the kind of work that isn't really considered a real job. It's often referred to as help or companionship, whereas it is the livelihood, and in fact, the fastest growing occupation in our entire economy today. Um, The workforce is also incredibly diverse. It's more than 90% women, which may not be a surprise to people, but is also almost half women of color, many immigrant women doing this work. It is a place where people of very different histories and traditions are interacting in really meaningful, meaningful ways. An example is a, a caregiver, a direct care worker named Mirla, who works in Chicago, and she's cared for more than 20 clients and introduced the Filipino cuisine to probably more than two dozen Midwestern families in the course of that time, and um, really loves what she does, takes it incredibly seriously. And for the work that she does, she works 24-hour shifts, four days a week, and then has three days off. And for the work that she does, she averages take take home about 7 to $9 per hour. It's crazy. And she's got, yes. So what, is, is, what does that work out to annually in salary? Well, it's actually uh, another interesting phenomenon in this workforce is that much of the workforce is actually struggling to assemble full-time work. 
um, it is difficult for this workforce to actually get uh, the, the hours to earn a full-time living. So the average annual median income for a direct care worker, a home care worker in particular, is $15,000 per year. And that, that's probably now, if they find full-time work or it, can put it together. Right, exactly. So, uh, and that is, to me, I mean, I can't think of a city or a town in this country where you could live, let alone support a family off of $15,000 per year. So well, you that's can't. a pretty scary thought. It is a scary thought. Well, and especially when you've got somebody who's working full-time or working more than full-time, you know, what we know about a lot of people who are in lower-wage-paying uh, jobs um, it isn't that they're not working. It's that they're working all of the time, but the pay isn't right. high enough uh, to able, you know, that we talk about a living wage. And people are, may not understand that living wage simply means that you could actually pay your bills with one job as opposed to having to have two part-time job or two full-time job equivalents. There's also a very long history of this workforce being excluded from some of the most basic labor protections that we all take for granted. And up until, a lot of people don't know this fact, up until October of last year, it was perfectly legal to pay home care workers less than the minimum wage in over a dozen states around the country because of that history of exclusion. Now the Department of Labor has addressed that and now finally home care workers and direct care workers are covered under minimum wage and overtime protections, but it has taken more than 80 years <laughs> to bring that into being. So it gives you a sense of how difficult it's been for us to culturally really acknowledge this workforce. And it's really time we do that because when we think about the need, we, are, we can't afford as a country to have a workforce that we rely upon to care for our loved ones and, and that workforce can't even care for them, their own families on the wages that they're earning. We've got to figure out how to stabilize and strengthen this workforce because they're going to be a huge part of the solution for the future. So you're like the Cesar Chavez of domestic and caregiving workers. What he did for farm workers, you're trying to do for, for another uh, overlooked and abused uh, segment of our society. Well, he is certainly a huge hero of mine. So. Um, I'm honored that you would put me in that lineage um, and make that comparison. Well, I had a but chance. I, I interviewed that. him a number of times uh, over the years. Oh, wow. He was an amazing guy. And uh, you have that same quality as I listened to you. Oh, well, I'm honored. Um, one, of the things that I, one of the things that I bring to this work is actually my love for my grandmother. I'm just watching my grandmother helped to raise me ever since I was six months old. She played a huge role in everything from potty training me to teaching me to speak Chinese to teaching me how to cook and my values so much that uh, so much richness that I've gained from my grandmother. And she is she just turned 90 and she still lives independently in her own apartment in the same apartment she shared with my grandfather before he passed in Southern California, and she has a really dignified quality of life. She's still, in Atul Gawande, Dr. Atul Gawande's words, she's still really the author of her own story, mm. and that's made possible by a wonderful caregiver named Mrs. Sun, who comes and supports her every afternoon with the things that she can no longer do on her own as she's become more frail. And so even as I speak as a champion of the workforce, I know firsthand as a family member and as someone who cares deeply for someone who is older um, and still deserves, certainly deserves a quality of life, that this is, we all have a stake in this issue and what happens to this workforce. Well, Ijen, as I listen to you, it sounds like direct workers are almost at a nexus of, um, what do I want to say? It, you know, it, it's, a, it's a confluence of women's issues and women being underpaid and undervalued it's ageism where we don't value and honor our older persons and so that and it's it's also the immigration policy that you talked about how many of these people um are women of color or maybe immigrants so it, it's also racism and immigration and and all of these kinds of uh influences come together to create uh, a workforce that is marginalized uh, like four times over 
It is true, and also a tremendous opportunity if we were to think about what are the leverage points in our economy where we can transform inequality, we can transform economic opportunity, investing in this workforce almost unlocks so much human potential, not just of this workforce and their families, but think about all of the overstressed, overstretched family caregivers who are hustling to work, working a full-time job, and then spending an average of 20 hours a week in addition to that, caring for family members, struggling to figure it out. I mean, we can together really address this in a way that unlocks so much human potential well, do you in, have our, any, in our economy. Do you have any champions on Capitol Hill in Washington and in the state houses who are uh, carrying this message? We have lots of champions in the state houses, and in fact, we're creating a state legislators network of all the legislators who are championing caregivers, and both family caregivers and professional caregivers, and want to be leaders on long-term care solutions. Because the challenge yeah. you Speaker, face... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Speaker, I was just going to name one person in particular, Speaker Eves, who is the Speaker of the House in Maine made a long-term care and aging in place a huge priority of his uh, of his tenure and created a whole package, a whole suite of policies at the state level that could support um, aging with dignity as well as the caregiving needs um, of families and the workforce. So there's been an investment in different pieces of a broader care agenda in Maine as a result of his leadership. And there are people like that who are emerging, saying, trying to get ahead of the curve here and saying, you know, there's an opportunity here. How can people help you who are listening? People can sign up and join the Caring Across Generations movement. We believe that there are at least 100 million people, almost a third of the country, who are directly affected by the need for real care solutions in this country. And together, that is a powerful force and voice for change. So if we can join together in a movement to really call upon our leaders in uh, government and business all over to say, we need a solution that works for everyone, for families and the workforce. So you can Sign up and get involved. Build a committee in your local community. Come to our website. Find out more at caringacrossgenerations.org. Caringacrossgenerations.org. Let, let me shift gears for 30 seconds. Uh, every once in a while we get to talk to a MacArthur Fellow dubbed Genius Award winner. And I'm always curious, uh, where were you when you got the call and did you believe it? <laughs> Great question. I was driving to a meeting. It was in the middle of the day, and I got a. I had just moved to Chicago, interestingly enough, and mm. so I got a call on my cell phone from a three one two number that Which I didn't Chicago. recognize. And I, in Chicago, the Chicago area code, mm. and I thought maybe it was the dry cleaner calling me to tell me that my <laughs> clothes were ready to be picked up. Picked up the phone, and they said it was the MacArthur Foundation. And I thought maybe they were looking for a reference for somebody, so I continued the conversation. They said that I had, I'm had, i the recipient of a fellowship, and it even took me a, a while to understand, oh, that fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I literally screamed out loud, which was very amusing to all the people on the MacArthur team who were on speakerphone listening. <laughs> um, but it was a joy and an incredible gift and also a really wonderful platform to be raising up these issues of caregivers. Well, you know, we're, we're so pleased with the work that you've done, and I had the pleasure of seeing one of the videos. You, you were talking about storytelling and how important storytelling is in this movement. Um, if people go to your website, will they be able to see some of the stories of the direct care workers and the families? Absolutely. And you can even see the video that you're referring to on YouTube with a, if you type in the hashtag, we all care. Um, and it's a video that um, is the weaving together of the story of a family caregiver whose mother has Alzheimer's, a professional caregiver who cared for a war veteran and a retired pediatrician, 
um, and um, and an older retired school teacher from New York who's named Bev. And the three of them, their stories are woven together to really tell a, a, a one story about the opportunity to come together and care for each other. Well, I recommend that everyone look on YouTube with the hashtag, we all care, but bring your box of Kleenex uh, when you watch the <laughs> video. It's, it's really, it's excellent. It's poignant. It communicates exactly what you're saying. Um, and people should look at it. Hi, Jen Poo. We thank you so much for coming on. One more time, the website for folks who want to get more information? www.caringacrossgenerations.org. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope we get Thank you for having me, well, and wonderful that you have a show that's themed around caregiving. That's right. So excited. And we'll have, if anybody can download this on podcast at caregiversos.org. So you can share it widely. You can put it on your website if you're so motivated. we got to run out of we time. absolutely will. Thank you very much. I'm Ron Thank Aaron. You. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. She's great. 9.30 a.m. The Answer is where we are. Caregiver. SOS on air. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. Caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. That's wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Thank you so much for sticking with us on Caregiver SOS on air as we do at the end of every one of our programs. We bring you Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known therapist, a specialist in caregiving and addictions as well, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Carol, you want to set up our Take 10? Well, you know, it's kind of a heavy topic, but we uh, recently I was visiting with my 93-year-old great-aunt, um, as well as some other older relatives, and there was a common theme. They were saying, you know, well, we shouldn't live to 100. Of course, this is somebody who's in their 90s. So, you know, nobody should live to 100. Um, and another relative said, you know, I, I should have stopped when I was back in my 70s. I, you know, I didn't want to live this long. And I think what they're communicating is, you know, it, it's hard to live in poor health. It's, it's difficult when you have ongoing chronic illnesses and you don't feel good. Um, and what the, and they were talking about a good death, which is something as Americans we're extremely uncomfortable about. Uh, but as caregivers, there's a point we have to realize, you know, all of us, I, all of us, there's only a few biblical characters that didn't die and the rest of us are going to die. Um, and when we are caring for somebody who is older and or very sick, uh, this might be a topic that they want to talk about and they may want to plan, you know, be they maybe they don't want to be in the hospital. Maybe they don't want to, you know, have all of the, the tests and the wires. And so, you know, I don't know, Jamie, is good death, is that is that a difficult topic for caregivers? Well, it's a difficult topic for anybody, to be frank with you. We've had such a taboo around death. I, I believe um, differently, but then that's my spiritual path, and anybody's spiritual path will probably give them a, a, a different perspective. But I believe that, you know, if, it's dignity. What you just said makes so much sense, Carol. I, I, the overcommunication between caregivers or family members of how – Dignity, if you will, plays a role in our lives. What we believe dignity is when we leave this world, uh, to me, that can't be communicated enough. I think by keeping it taboo, by keeping it quiet, by not being open and honest about the beauty of life's process from birth to death, I think we're doing an extraordinarily huge disservice. So um, the right way to pass, um, I don't know about the right way to pass, but I can tell you that dignity, uh, you can never go wrong with. Now, isn't that one of the underpinnings of hospice, that... Uh, you're creating an environment in which you can 
ease yourself through the last months of your life? I believe hospice is a great example, uh, Ron. I think you're spot on. I think we have a huge movement in healthcare now. I think WellMed is really taking a, a big lead in Texas and soon to be in Florida on palliative care. I believe these are ways that we can find dignity uh, through honesty. And, and, and what Carol says is the most important, which is by choice. I know we're limited in this country for moral and ethical reasons about assisted suicide, so that's not a topic we need to go down. Other countries are entertaining it more fast and furiously. But I do believe that this is an extraordinarily important conversation to have around the table when we're healthy. Well, you know, not, we don't have to wait till we get sick. And an advanced directive can help you do that, can't it? Dead on. Spot, excuse my... Uh, yeah, yeah, dead, dead on. on. Well, <laughs> well, you know, one of the facts that I read recently in the New York Times was that more people die in the hospital or a nursing home than at home. And if we were to survey any of the loved ones, any of our caregivers' loved ones, um, and, and ask them where would they like to die... How many of them do you think would say a hospital or a nursing home? You know, Carol, you're, you're so right. I just bought a home. Hey, tell all your listeners in Texas I just bought a home here in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And somebody said to me, you know, when are you going to move from this home and go somewhere else? Because they know that that's been the story of my life. And I said, I think you're going to have to bring a shovel and an epitaph the next time because I really want to die here. Hey, have you got a water view? Yeah, actually, I, I do, but it's not on the water because of my little three-year-old, but I, I actually have a water view. And a spare bedroom? And a spare bedroom. Oh, now we, now, now we know where yeah, watching you, you'll have house, un, unwanted time. house guests. Yeah. What our listeners will know is that Ron will bring his children, I'll bring my child, and we'll be, you know, wonderful boomers and older adults here parenting our kids, and we'll stay there forever and ever and ever. But no, on the, on the serious right. side... Aging in place is it. And last week you were talking, Carol, about the support groups and about uh, the AAAs and and long-term care. And and I agree 100%. Uh, Again, they're leading the way. And and for us to age in place, that is about dignity. Well, over um, the holidays, they were having 24 hours of John Wayne movies. Uh, And one of the movies was True Grit. And if you remember True Grit, the original one, I, I can't speak to the to the ending on the remake, but the original one, the, the little girl, the Kim Darby character, um, asked John Wayne if he will be buried next to her in her plot of land on the family farm. Um, and she says, isn't it comforting to know where you're going to spend eternity. And she, you know, she talked about it multiple times because her father had died. And she's like, here's Papa. This is where I'm going to be buried. And John Wayne, I want you to be buried next to me. And, of course, he says, well, don't, you know, I'm not going to join you anytime soon. I might take you up on it, but, you know, I'm not going to join you anytime soon. Uh, And that's, you know, that really jarred me at the time, just thinking about how somebody young like that really was, planning for him, planning for herself, and found peace and comfort. And how often, I think, in the modern society, we've lost that idea. Yes, yes, yes. And I think Ron really hit on it and what you just said, the planning and comfort. It is about planning. It's about the advanced directives. It's about the health care surrogacy. It's about how you, you know, would like your days at the end to be taken care of. It's about, you know, Dr. Um, Erickson basically said it clearly. Do you want to look back on your life, because it doesn't matter how much money you have or belongings, with either integrity or despair? And I truly believe that when you plan, like Ron said, advanced directives, and the family can talk about it, and they can bring it onto the table as if it's a, a topic where we're well or not well, I think then that's a good death, if you will, or at least planning for that. It's part of our vernacular, part of our lives. You're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air. If you've just joined us, Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel are with us. I'm Ron Aaron talking about a good death. Well, what recently uh, our palliative care department at, at WellMed has really kind of helped me refocus thinking about chronic illnesses, um, diseases that people have that are not going to get better, uh, they may get worse, um, and asking people, what is your lifestyle, what is your wish list for not necessarily the end of life, but the last years of your life. Is it pain management? Do you have a condition where you're in a lot of pain? Do you want to have more energy? There are some medications that control symptoms very well, but they zap you of your energy. So are your medications matched to the lifestyle that you want to have? What are you willing to give up 
to get something mm-hmm. else. You know, maybe they make you really sleepy. Um, so, you know, it, there are choices to be made in your health care and in your lifestyle. So what is, how is it you want to live? That's such an important discussion for your physician, for your family members to know. Because if you're the older person like my great aunt, mm-hmm. you want to have that discussion. She's trying to have those discussions with us. I had a good friend, uh, Ken Weicker was his name, was a big, big heavy hitter at Clear Channel, general counsel, developed pancreatic cancer, tried everything, he was going to die. And I interviewed him on the radio about what that was like. And I asked him, well, well what is the one thing you want to do? And I figured, because he had a lot of money, uh, he'd like to go out to Hollywood, date some big movie star, and enjoy life. You know what he said the answer was, Jamie? What? He wanted to see his little girl ride her bike. Wow. Yeah. You know, I can identify with that, you know. Yeah. I've found out about my mortality right. now that I have a three-and-a-half-year-old child. Right. And he got to do that. He did get to do that. See, that's that's beautiful. But we would have never known, Ron, really. I certainly wouldn't have right. known about Ken unless you had asked him the question. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of what you're saying here is this overcommunication cannot, you know, ever be avoided. I think what we have done is a disservice. And I think what Carol brings up around palliative care and how it's going to reframe her mind and certainly reframing my mind, I, I think it's extraordinarily valid, allowing the person to have the choice. I mean, don't we live in America? Isn't it about freedom? Isn't it about choice? That, to me, has to be part and parcel with what Carol's calling, and, and this topic is a good death. Is anyone listening to your aunt? Oh, I think so. Good. I think so. Be- for number one, you know, she's we've always shy. listened to it. She's not shy. <laughs> yeah. She makes perfect sense. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I do think that this is a topic. There's there's a resurgent mm-hmm. right now about people talking about the rights of the dying. Um, some of it's extreme. Some of it is really makes sense. And so I think in the United States, it, it, it is time for us to look at people's lives there's so much longer and make those choices for a good death. Last word goes to Carol, flat out of time. Dr. Jamie Heisman, thank you. Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thank you so much for listening to us on Caregiver SOS On Air right here on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.